survivors. This is The Crux, and I'm your host, Casey McIntosh. And I'm Tessa King. Julianne Kopka was a 17-year-old girl that got more than she bargained for when she boarded a Christmas Eve flight to see her father for Christmas after graduating from high school. Never again would her life be the same. Julianne was an only child born in Lima, Peru in 1954 as a German national. So for all of you that don't know, a German national is somebody who acquires German citizenship if a parent is a German citizen, irrespective of birth location. Her mother and father were scientists at the Museum of Natural History. Her father was a biologist, Hans William. Her mother was an ornithologist, Maria. Birds. Birds. She liked birds. Yes. And so this is an important museum of natural history. It's boasting specimens of Peruvian fauna, flora, and minerals. Mm. So some highlights of uh, the museum included skeleton of sperm whale, cool. fossils of South American horses, and get this, you'll be excited about this one, fossils of giant ground sloths. <laughs> ground sloths? Yes. Like they are from the ground. They're not ground up. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, just... Good clarification here. <laughs> so when she turned 14, her parents set up a research station in the Amazon rainforest called Panguana. She lived there for at least a year and a half with her parents. That's so, cool. Yeah. Talk about remote. Probably not the time of your life when you l- want to live so remotely. But yeah, especially if you're a teenager, you're probably not into it. Yeah. But maybe, maybe she was different. Trapped with your parents. <laughs> So, uh, Panguana is a biological research station located in a low land rainforest at the western foothill of El Sierra mountain range, founded in 1968. And since 2011, it's also a private conservation area in the tropics of Peru. So, this, this research area is not exactly really easy to get to. You have to cross this Pachidia River on foot for an, an hour and a half through forest and pastures, or you can take a two-hour boat ride, which I would prefer the boat, boat ride. ride. Yes. 100%. <laughs> so the research area is hilly with various bodies of water, swamp, forest, and some pastures and plantations along the western border areas. And the research station was really only designed for five years of research. So they originally set up in this cabin that had been abandoned by locals. In, and it was um, a building that stood on stilts and had palm leaf roof. That's cool. But why do I feel like this research is going to go on way longer than five years? (laughs) I I don't know. Because there's a lot to actually um, discover in the Amazon. There's a ton of species that haven't been really studied or documented. So Even now? Yes. Yeah. So what year does all of this take place? So this is in the late 60s. Okay. So Julianne was homeschooled by her parents, but she had to return to school in order to take her final exams and graduate with her class. Was that in Germany? This is actually in Lima, Peru. That's where she so was born. So that's where she was going to do her testing was yes. in Peru. Okay. Yes. So the Deutsch Schule Lima Alexander von Humboldt. That's where that's she went mouthful. to school. Yes. And she graduated on December 23rd, 1971. And so at the time of her graduation, her mother, Maria, was actually working in Lima. Um, so they were probably just tag teaming, trying to get some stuff done before Christmas. And she wanted to return to Panguana with Julianne um, on December 19th or 20th, but they ended up staying to attend Julianne's graduation ceremony. She wanted to graduate with her class. And so her mom said, okay, well, we'll make arrangements and we'll fly a little bit later. 
Well, that makes sense. So, and their whole plan was to spend Christmas with her father. So Julianne's mother booked a flight with Lanza Airline, which is Linnaeus Arias Nationales, S.A., on a plane called a Lockheed L-188A Electra um, on Christmas Eve with the Lanza Airline going against the recommendations of Julianne's father, who was really concerned about the safety of the flight because this airline actually had a terrible reputation and they had already lost two flights to crashes. Oh my gosh, this is giving me anxiety already. <laughs> okay, yeah. keep going. So <laughs> they were just desperate to get home to um, spend Christmas with Julianne's father. Just a little bit about the Lockheed L-188 Electra. So what it is, is it's an American turboprop airliner built by Lockheed. It's the first turboprop airline built in the United States. And initially the sales were really good, but then there were these two fatal crashes because of a design defect. And so basically sales were halted and no more planes were ordered. Um, it initially had a lot of potential because it is really high power to the weight. Um, mm -hmm. And it had four engines. I'm just trying to imagine what it would be like today, just in consideration of the whole Boeing thing. Mm -hmm. If people would have been flying it all after two fatal crashes. I just think, and I haven't done a lot of research on this specifically, but the standards for flight safety in the United States might be totally a lot different. different. Yeah. Yeah. And what you expected out of taking a flight might be totally different as well. Mm -hmm. Makes you really want to fly in a foreign country, right? Totally. Okay. So... There are 91 individuals loading on this plane, six crew members, 86 passengers. So two of the passengers were, of course, Julianne and her mother, Maria. And actually, they were really upset and irritated because the flight was leaving a couple hours later than its scheduled departure. So they're already kind of on edge, probably. Um, Lanza Flight 508 departed Lima's George Chavez International Airport just before 12 p.m. on Christmas Eve. December 24th, 1971. They had a stop scheduled at Pequilpa. The final destination was Iquitos. So the craft is flying at 21,000 feet above sea level when the plane entered an area of severe thunderstorms and turbulence. The crew decided to keep going, even though they encountered bad weather because they really had a lot of pressure to get people to their destinations before the holidays. Mm -hmm. At least this is what's speculated. Oh, for sure. So they just basically enter this really dark cloud and the plane starts just thrashing around. And Julianne's mother is really, really fearful and she's concerned. Um, but Julianne wasn't really worried because she was comfortable flying. But 10 minutes into this severe turbulence, it was clear that there was really a major problem with the airplane. This is a direct quote from Julianne's experience, and this was from the BBC. There was a very heavy turbulence, and the plane was jumping up and down. Parcels and luggage were falling from the locker. There were gifts, flowers, and Christmas cakes flying all around the cabin. When we saw lightning around the plane, I was scared. My mother and I held hands, but we were unable to speak. Other passengers began to cry and weep and scream. At 12.30 p.m. local time, a lightning strike ignited a fuel tank in the right wing. Oh, my gosh. After about 10 minutes, I saw a very bright light on the outer engine at the left. My mother said very calmly, this is the end. Oh it's all gosh. over. 
Those were the last words I ever heard of her. The plane jumped down and went into a nosedive. It was pitch black and people were screaming. The deep roaring of the engines filled my head completely. Suddenly, the noise stopped and I was outside the plane. I was in a free fall, strapped to my seat and hanging head over heels. The whispering of the wind was the only noise I could hear. I felt completely alone. I could see the canopy of the jungle spinning towards me. Then I lost consciousness and I remembered nothing about the impact. Later, I learned that the plane had broken into pieces about two miles above the ground. That's so crazy. I can't even imagine this. I was going to ask if she passed out because I've heard that your body can't handle the stress of a free fall like that and that you will pass out if you fall from a severe height like she did. It's crazy. But just imagining the forest coming up around you as you fall down. Yeah, I think that probably by the point that she got close to the forest, she was, I'm sure it just happened so quickly, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So the plane disintegrated following the lightning strike to the fuel tank. So it's estimated that this occurred two miles above the jungle floor. That's how far her free fall was. That's a long way. I wonder how fast that happens. Well, a two mile. Oh, you know. Okay. Well, I looked into this a little bit. Of course, there's no way that we can know for sure how fast Julianne was going. Um, but she was strapped into her seat and she landed in this heavy, fo- uh, heavy foliage in the jungle. Um, she lost consciousness as we mentioned, and she awoke one day later. So I was trying to figure out, okay, well, how fast could she have possibly been flying? And you have to realize that she was in the center seat and there were two seats on either side of her. Yeah. So those probably, you know, slowed her fall. Mm-hmm. But, um, this is what I found again from skydive California. So it said that the downward speed achievable by the human form in free fall is a function of several factors, including body mass, orientation, skin area, and surface texture. But the usual math standardizes all of that for a human shaped object. The equation splits out the terminal velocity of 60 meters per second without the terminal velocity of the typical skydiver, which clocks in at an average of 55 meters per second, which is 123 miles per hour. So um, the terminal velocity of a belly-to-earth skydiver is 120 miles per hour. So just Mm -hmm. to give you a little bit of an idea, of course, like with the seats that she was on, that's going to be increased weight. So I'm sure that that plays into it too, but there was greater surface area. So it's like a matter of seconds at that point. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you could probably estimate that she was going, I mean, we're just estimating, but between 100 and 120 miles an hour. Mm Mm-hmm. So once she awoke, she realized that she had survived the crash. That was her first thought. And then she was like, where is my mother? You know, Mm -hmm. she became really concerned about her mother and she started looking around, but it doesn't seem like there was anything else in the area where she landed. There were, there wasn't a bunch of plane wreckage or something like that. Yeah. I'm wondering how far everything got spread out. Yeah, it's hard to say because the the whole thing just fell apart in the air. Yeah, and it's moving. So Mm -hmm. really it could be a large scatter. Yeah, exactly. So she basically gets up and starts assessing her injuries. And she had a concussion, of course, Um, a broken collarbone, a cut to her right arm, and her right eye was swollen shut. Um, She also had a torn ligament in her knee, but she was unaware of that knee injury and she was able to walk on it. Okay. Did it say how she landed? You know, you said that she was in foliage, but I mean, obviously she didn't land on her head. Yeah. I'm assuming that she landed upright in the seat. Yeah. I'm just trying to imagine how she. 
kind of came to and well and how do you not have like multiple spinal fractures oh, like ver- yeah. you know vertebral body fractures with that kind of impact I don't I don't know I mean Youth, it's B17 <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly I'm sure that helped so she was still strapped in the seat and so I'm sure that that helped to some degree so she could hear sounds of aircrafts flying overhead looking for wreckage, but it was just too thick with trees and no one could actually see her. Yeah, how could you even signal anyone? Yeah, and luckily she didn't panic. Um, she didn't really think that the jungle was that dangerous. You know, she'd spent a ton of time in the jungle at the research station, so I think she probably felt somewhat at home in this setting, which is probably the reason that, you know, it, I guess the whole point is that most of us wouldn't have been that level-headed in this kind of situation. Right. And spoiler alert, she survives this. <laughs> if you haven't caught on, this is a survival podcast. Yes. But you would think with what her parents did, she would have a lot of background knowledge about her surroundings too and how to better survive. So I think that you would be a little bit more level-headed about it. I would hope so. Yeah. You would think that she would pick something up, one thing or two. Yeah. So the Amazon rainforest is a moist broadleaf tropical rainforest in the Amazon biome that covers most of the Amazon basin of South America. And this is a very large amount of space. So it encompasses 7 million kilometers squared, 5,500,000 kilometers squared are covered by rainforest. Um, The majority of the rainforest is in Brazil and um, 13% of it is in Peru and other areas in South America. She basically said on a visit back to the area that the dangers of the jungle are basically misjudged. And she said this while standing in waters of the Rio Uyu Pichis River, where there are stingrays, crocodiles, and piranhas in the water. She said that she was safe as piranhas are harmless in moving water and crocodiles avoid you most of the time, and stingrays move when being prodded with a stick. That's very interesting. Mm-hmm. I still probably wouldn't do what she's doing, but... Also, there's mention about crocodiles jumping into the water when they see you, but really they're not coming after you. They're just trying to take cover. Mm. So she knew this, and she didn't panic when they jumped into the water with her. So at the point at which she is assessing her situation, she is in a, basically a sleeveless mini dress and white sandals, but one of them had fallen off during the crash. And um, also Julianne was very nearsighted and she didn't have her glasses. Well, I hope she didn't have surgery to correct her myopia. I guess my point is she was blind. So <laughs> she basically couldn't see very far in front of her. And what she was doing was using her foot with a shoe to step forward and kind of like feel out to see what was out there. Oh and then, and then she would, you know, so she didn't step on a snake or something with her foot that didn't have a shoe on it. Yeah. And it doesn't sound like a mini dress would be the ideal outfit for the jungle. No, at least not for nighttime. Um, so the only food that she had in her possession was a bag of sweets that landed near her seat and that oh fall, fell from, from, it just fell from the plane. I so, wonder if they were even hers. Um, who knows? There was no real mention about that. And the only reason I say that it would be interesting to know if they were hers, because like, what kind of stroke of luck if it's just from another passenger and there's no other debris around her except this bag of snacks? It's yeah. It's kind of wild. It is. It was meant to be. Yeah. So she was mostly concerned about starving. 
Um, she walked in the creek that she found because she thought it was the safest route to travel. And also I read somewhere that um, the whole concept of following this dream is that it brings you to um, people mm-hmm. because people are going to be near water. Sure. Um, and also, I guess you're not likely to step on a snake if you're walking through a stream. Unless I mean, there's I'm, a water snake. Yeah, unless there's a water snake. <laughs> Um, she was mentioning that snakes in the in the jungle look like piles of dry leaves. Oh yeah, oftentimes, and so it's, they're camouflaged. Yeah, it's easy to step on them. But she thankfully didn't see any during her journey. Well, of course she didn't. She gets just <laughs> blind. I know. In some ways, maybe that was actually a blessing in disguise. Yeah. So it was hot and rainy during the day, and it was cool at night because of the clothes that she was wearing. Um, and also, it's like. Are your clothes even dry at the point at which? Oh, I'm sure not. Yeah, I didn't see anything about her building shelters, but I'm sure that, you know, she could have done that. So on the fourth day of her journey, she heard a noise of a landing king vulture. So she had learned about this animal from the research center. And so what she knew about this bird is that they're only going to land if there's a lot of carrion. She assumed at that point that the reason that these vultures were landing was because there were dead bodies from the airplane crash. Oh my gosh. That's horrifying. Yeah. Just another good reason not to be able to see. Holy cow. I thought you were going to say because she looked like she was close to death and they were landing to pick her off, but that's worse. Yeah. So she was finding her way down the creek on the fourth day and... She found a bench from the plane with three passengers rammed headfirst into the ground. Oh, my gosh. So initially she felt super panicky because she'd never seen a dead body. And then she was thinking, is my mother one of those people? Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine? So then she gets closer and sees that the woman in this grouping of people had painted nails. And then she knew immediately that it wasn't her mother. And she felt a little bit of relief and then felt bad that she felt relieved. Um, But she just kept trekking on at that point. So by day 10, she was growing really, really weak and she was lumbering along this larger river that she had found. And she was just feeling kind of hopeless and alone at this point. And then she saw this large boat, but she, she thought that she was seeing like that she was hallucinating. Mm -hmm. Um, and then she saw a path into the jungle where there was a hut with palm leaves um, on the roof and she found a liter of gasoline at this hut and you're going to really love this next part Tessa okay so she had this big arm wound and it was infested with maggots Ugh. oh and so she sees this gasoline did she tank? pour it on herself yeah Stop it. yeah she did she poured the gasoline directly into her arm the cut because she'd seen her dad do this on their dog oh okay because I was like that sounds bad yeah because their dog had a maggot infestation. In no, I just mean it sounds bad for your, for your body. living body. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what's worse, maggots in your arm or, I mean, I would say that probably the gasoline is the lesser of two evils. Okay. I got to know right now, did she keep her arm after this? Yeah. Okay. Good. So Thank she you. pours the gasoline on her arm and then she pulls out 30 maggots because they were trying to get further into her flesh oh my God. because the, they didn't want to be <laughs> gasolined. So. Oh. So she had a physically, she's physically, (laughs) she's physically pulling them out of her arm. Yeah. I just have to give her props because she seems like a tough chick. Oh yeah. I would be (laughs) dead. (laughs) 
Oh, man, I might as well drink the gasoline at that point. <laughs> off myself. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine? I, I mean, I can't imagine doing this to myself. But I, what I can't imagine is how many, you know, she's, this is 10 days in. So for 10 days, how many of those days have maggots been in her arm? And she's just been like ignoring it the whole time. Yeah. And 30 of them. Yeah. And who knows how many of them. I'm just wondering how deep her wounds were. That's the other thing is like digging them out is what's so horrifying to me. Painful experience. So the next is basically she decides to stay at this little hut. And the next day she heard voices of men outside. And she said that she made mention that it was like hearing the voices of the angels. So they're pretty nice. (laughs) Yeah. Thankfully they were. She mentioned something about how they looked at her. Like she was this blonde haired, white skinned goddess, like water goddess or something. But I think they were just shocked to see somebody come out of the hut when they were probably expecting it. Mm-hmm. So they actually treated her injuries and they fed her and they brought her back to civilization. Great. Yeah. So one day later, right after she was brought back to civilization, whatever civilization that might be, um, she was re- reunited with her father. And I'm guessing he was pretty awestruck that she was alive. And I'm not aware. Oh my gosh. I don't know if he was... I mean, probably he assumed she was dead. Yeah, he must have guess. already known all about the crash. But yeah, it had almost been two weeks at that point. It's like, yeah, she was brought back on day 12 or something. So, so do they say anything? I mean, besides that small rationing of snacks, what was she eating out? And there was no the other mention that I saw about anything else that she may have been eating. Yeah, I'm so curious. So crocodiles. <laughs> I don't know. I was I was looking for that information, but I didn't see anything about it specifically. Doesn't she have a book? Yes. Well, go read the book, guys. Find <laughs> out for yourself. And then tell us so we don't have to do the reading. Thanks. So at this time, you know, they were looking for news of her mother and just wondering what happened to her. And on January 12th, they found her body. She was thought to have survived the crash, but she died a few days following the crash because of um, severe injuries and her inability to move. Oh, that's so sad. I know. And so just thinking about, I don't know what the distance was between where she landed and where Julianne landed. And I was kind of wondering if she had been ejected from the seat because Mm -hmm. it mentioned that Julianne was sitting right next to her mother. Right. And so... Yeah, if if Julianne was with the seat... Yeah. I mean, I didn't find anything spe- specifying this, but. Well, and airplane seat belts aren't exactly like the most sturdy, strappy in types. Yeah. So I can see how easy. It's actually amazing that she stayed with that bank of seats as she fell. Well, and maybe not everyone had their seat belts on, but. I oh, yeah. Know. The point where things are falling from the overhead compartments. I don't think you're worried about, I mean, if I'm going down in a plane, I probably am going to assume that I'm going to die. Yeah. I don't know. Let's hope that we never have to live through that experience. So, um, Julianne's survival has been speculated upon frequently. Um, but again, just being that she was sitting in a bank of seats and it was shielded and cushioned somewhat, they think, you know, speculators, if you will, think that the seats slowed her crash and also they were speculating that there was an updraft of the storm from um 
basically all of the under all the foliage and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, it's pretty crazy. Is this another one of those things where people believe that it didn't happen? I'm sure because it just seems so unlikely. She was the only survivor of this plane crash. And can you remind me how many people were on the flight? 91, including the flight staff. Yeah, that is horrible. So now she's known as Julianne Diller, and she's a librarian in the Bavarian State Collection of Zoology in Munich. And her autobiography is, well, When I Fell from the Sky, it was released on the 10th of March in 2011. And she actually received a prize, the Korean Literature Prize in 2011. And in 2019, the government of Peru awarded her the Order of Merit for Distinguished Services in the degree of Grand Officer, whatever that means. So she actually returned to the crash site in 1998, and there are some photos of her visiting the area. That's so crazy. So I just looked up some information about surviving in the jungle, and uh, there's a website that's specified to this um it's called adventure alternatives website they teach these tips to clients in borneo so these the the survival tips start with an acronym stop which could really be applied to any situation (laughs) make sure you're thinking about this guys yeah go down on an airplane (laughs) well regardless i think it's it's a these are words to live by okay stop yeah stop okay so that stands for stop think, observe, and plan. Again, could oh be applied gosh. to anything. I'm pretty sure Aaron Ralston talked about this in a video I watched, oh, yeah? actually. Oh. Yeah, because he was thinking about how he had to calm down while he was stuck to stop to think. So this is actually a thing outside of the story. Well, you could just consider this when you're stuck in bumper-to-bumper traffic on your way to work. <laughs> sure. So, anyway... Um, I'm also curious what the longest jungle survival is. I don't know that answer. Well, that's okay. I'm just, you know, because we were talking about like the longest desert survival. Yeah. Okay. So let's do another would you rather. Would you rather be stuck alone in the desert or stuck alone in the rainforest? I'm going to say rainforest 100%. I'm thinking that sounds better in some ways. Like you have a surplus of water. Water. And there's probably more to eat, honestly. Although there's probably a lot of stuff in the jungle that would kill you if you ate Faster. it. Faster. Well, and not even just if you ate it, like stepping on Oh yeah, a broa. Okay, so along that topic, I want to talk about the risky things in the jungle according to Adventure Alternative. So fallen trees is number one on their list. Um, just because falling trees and branches are the most common reason for injuries in the jungle... So they say choosing a night camp is important and keep it on clear ground. Um, the next one was slippery rocks. So that's that seems pretty high in the list. Um, sunstroke is after that, followed by sunburn, followed by heat stroke, which all of those could be kind of combined into one thing. Yeah, probably. Imagine having a sunburn so bad it kills you. Oh, man. Uh, dehydration and then mosquitoes. But again, it seems unlikely that you would become dehydrated because... Um, there's so many ways to collect water. Yeah, even from what you're eating, potentially. Yeah, and what they what you can do is grab a huge leaf and just let, um, when water it's raining, collect. yeah, because it's raining probably 
at least daily. daily. Yeah. Oh, for sure. So I, w- I would think that you're less likely to become dehydrated in the jungle versus mm-hmm. versus the desert. But yeah, it's just interesting. I think the jungle it would be easier to survive, but scarier to be in for an extended amount of time. Yeah. Just because there's a lot of potential ways to get injured and a lot of just a lot of things that your body isn't going to like very much. Like, Mm -hmm. and just think about the insects Mm -hmm. and mosquitoes were on that list. So I'm guessing it's because they bite you and they're carrying something. And I would imagine they're also huge. Yeah. No, thank you. Also, I just looked it up while we were talking. The longest jungle survival is 31 days. Uh, It said it was voluntary wilderness survival, whatever that means. I think that means you go out there intentionally to see how long you can last. I mean, I just don't feel like that really counts as survival. That just is, I don't know. Well, part of it is that you are prepared with a bunch of provisions and things like that, probably. I mean, I don't know. Um, Anyway, I thought that that was a fascinating story. I can't imagine how terrifying it would be to be ejected from an airplane mid-flight. Yeah, I'm going to have nightmares about pulling maggots out of myself now. <laughs> I'm sorry so for that. Thanks for I'm that. sorry for that negative imagery. <laughs> All right, everyone. Thanks for joining us this week on this edition of The Crux. And tune in next week to listen to another episode on Monday. Yeah, keep, keep on trucking. <laughs>